Hello everyone and welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. Here we'll discuss everything related to the wide world of automobiles, including culture, news, games, interviews, and events. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, hey everyone, welcome to today's Sunday special. In this Sunday special, we're going to be reading an article from Road & Track, which delves into the demise of the Australian auto industry. Now, I've been seeing this over the years as I've been doing this podcast, even off the podcast as I just check up on the news to see what's going on. And I always found it kind of strange that it seemed to be falling apart ever, ever so relatively slowly. And so finally, we have an article that would appear anyway to really talk about how and why it all fell apart so Kind of quickly, actually, so I'm really excited to get into this. Land Gone Under, How Australia's Auto Industry Fell Apart, an article by Mac, Matt, no, Mac Hogan. How a mining boom, retreating government support, and the Toyota production system conspired to kill Australian car manufacturing. The stocky speaker in the blue, the blue suit spat venom across the aisle, wagging, wagged his finger at the opposition, and took full command of the podium. Cheering erupted from behind him booing thunder from the opposite side. His usual slick smile missing in action. He stared down the raucous, angry, angry crowd that was Australia's parliament. The current raging debate was whether to continue assisting the company's flailing auto industry. The government was tired of subsidizing Australian car making, which employed thousands but had always kept one foot out the door. Ford and Mitsubishi had already left. Nissan had gone for decades. Imports comprised more and more of the market. Suppliers struggled even as the rest of the economy seemed to be humming along. Much of the debate centered around Holden, the GM subsidiary headquartered in Port Melbourne. The company maintained several local factories but received billions in Australian taxpayer aid to do so while sending meager profits back to Detroit. And now treasurer Joe Hockey was done playing nice. Nostrils flared, finger jabbing the lectern. He leaned into the microphone and made the government's case. If Holden wanted another dime, Australia needed to know whether the company was in it for the long haul. Either you're here, he said, or you're not. The next day, he had his answer. On December 11th, 2013, GM announced that Holden would cease production in Australia by the end of 2020. No, of the, by the end of 2017. Actually, that's before the podcast starts, so that's why. That's a lot earlier than I thought. That's, that's very interesting. So to get back to the point, though, that's two years, almost three years, before the podcast even started. And that was before I was even aware that this was an issue. That's It's interesting to hear that this started so early. That reminds me of when I was reading the SRT Viper America Supercar, Supercar book by Maurice Q. Lang. And they were talking, he talked about when the Gen 5 program kind of actually started. And in, in truth, it started in 2009. I think, but in, in earnest, it kind of got under the, underway in 2010. But the origins of it started in 2009. So it's always interesting when you read pieces like this and you find out that no, as much as it seems like thing, the ball got rolling when it did, no, talks were happening sometimes a year, two, maybe even three years before any action was actually taken. So it's always interesting to find out that these events, they sometimes happen a lot earlier than we suspect, but you, you just wouldn't know that from the outside looking in. Getting back to the article though. Two months later, Toyota, which had a plant in suburban Melbourne, confirmed it was leaving too. And so the winding down began. Factories closed, employees were laid off, suppliers pivoted, looking for customers in a manufacturing sector that now barely existed. In early 2020, GM announced it was axing the Holden brand altogether. The news came more as a mercy than a surprise. 
Australia's oldest car maker was dead, as was the country's auto industry. The fortunes of factory turn the fortunes of factory towns and thousands of jobs went with it. 69 years of continuous production boarded up. The company was told to no, the country was told to move on, forget the automotive sector. But Australia left its indelible mark on the automotive landscape as the birthplace of Mount Panorama Circuit and Mad Max's Pursuit Special. Oz was hot rod utes and factory super sedans on Mustang platforms, the land where the V8 dream never died until it did. Perhaps the end was unavoidable, as a consequence of factors far beyond the control of any automaker or transportation minister. Much of it was structural. The Aussie industry looked healthy from the outside, but doing business domestically had always depended on investment from foreign automakers and, sub and subsidies from the Australian government. Australia, like the US, came together as a federation, says Dr. Russell Lansbury in Emiratus? I hope I got that right, I probably got it horribly wrong. Professor at the University of Sydney and an industrial relations scholar. And one of the big issues was free trade versus protectionism. There were two main political parties, one advocating for free trade but, and one for protectionism. Protectionism won out, with the government that came into power in 1901 choosing to defend its manufacturing sector. Agriculture and mining, Lansbury says, were the, were the country's natural industries. Manufacturing would need artificial support to survive. When, when post-war industry... Oh, when post-war industrial players like GM, Ford, Renault, Toyota, and Chrysler sought access to Australia's growing market, they hit a steep tariff wall, with import duties as high as 57.5%. The automotive market essentially required local assembly. Carmakers bought in, though. Nearly a dozen manufacturers built, built vehicles in Australia at the industry's peak. Before long, entire supplier, entire supply chains were centered in Australia, with second- and third-tier suppliers manufacturing fasteners, electronics, and miscellaneous components. Inside this self-contained ecosystem, the industry could turn out dozens of models with major components sourced directly from Australian firms. Car culture and motorsport flourished. The local tribalism of Holden and Ford families gave rise to one of the all-time great automotive rivalries. Simple, reliable workhorses like the Toyota Land Cruiser roamed through the Australian outback. V8 family sedans revved at stoplights next to truck-light, quintessentially Australian utes. In honest-to-God, homegrown racing series sprouted. V8 supercars thundered over and around Mount Panorama. Panorama, perhaps. Promoting the culture and producing dozens of top-tier drivers. The Americans have a gun culture. We have a car culture, Mad Max director George Miller famously said. The boom lasted for decades. Holden, a coach builder that became GM's Australian arm in 1931, and the company that gave Australia its first mass-produced car, grew to support seven operational factories and 24,000 workers. Holden would eventually become Australia's flagship brand, but it was far from its only large-scale manufacturer. By the time the industry peaked in the 70s, Ford, Nissan, and Toyota all had plants in the country. The industry was vibrant then, but by most objective measures, it was never very big. Annual automotive production in Australia topped out at around 500,000 cars per year. That's about the annual production of BMW's Spartan Spartanburg, South Carolina plant, Hyundai's largest complex in Ulsan, South Korea. I perhaps got that wrong, I'm sorry. Can make 1.5 million cars annually. Even at their apex, Australia's plants never got close to today's mega factories. How could they? With the rise of modern globalized economy, Australia's manufacturers had to confront certain economic realities, chiefly national buying power. Australia has a smaller GDP than New York State. 
Without large-scale vehicle exports, only the most successful cars were produced at a large enough scale to justify a localized supply chain. Okay, so it is partially what I was talking about. Because how many Utes were really being exported? Not that many. How many of Holden's cars were being exported? Not that many. Where else was the Ford Falcon being exported? Not that many places from what I know. So only the most successful cars were produced at a large enough scale to justify a localized supply chain. So more likely than not, the Holden Commodore, the Ford Falcon, and various Utes. This left domestic automakers in a fierce continuous fight for every bit of market share during the 70s and 80s. By the way, we're getting back into the article. Sorry. Renault bowed out in 1981. Chrysler sold its Australian business to Mitsubishi. Volkswagen and British Leyland ceased local operations. Meanwhile, the same protectionist policies buoying the auto industry were drawing retaliatory tariffs, impacting far more profitable sectors of the Australian economy. Eventually, the government decided it was time to open the gates. Enter Senator John Button, Federal Minister for Industry and Commerce. Depending on who you ask, his plan to overhaul the Australian auto industry was either a cursed moment or a necessary evil. Either way, it's considered the point of no return. Beginning in 1985, the government encouraged auto manufacturers to gradually consolidate and attempt to become more competitive with the outside world. Import tariffs would taper with the goal of leaving three robust manufacturers locally producing about six models between them. Button's scheme to cull the herd worked. By the early 2000s, only Mitsubishi, Toyota, Ford, and Holden were left standing. And then Mitsubishi closed its last plant in 2008. Still, it remained tremendously difficult for automakers to turn a profit in Australia. The biggest enemy of localized production, experts say, was the emergence of the Toyota production system, also known as lean or just-in-time manufacturing. The method relies on close coordination with suppliers to eliminate shipping and storage waste. Ideally, a gigantic factory acts as a nexus, fed by a network of suppliers working in unison. Automakers across the globe quickly adopted and standardized lean methods. But with aging facilities scattered across a sprawling continent and insufficient sales to justify for factories, let alone for manufacturers, implementation in Australia just wasn't possible. Neither was Button's vision of propping up a trio of globally competitive car makers. But the Australian auto industry wasn't brought down by a lack of investment, the rise of just-in-time manufacturing, or the challenges of a unique local market. It was a mining boom in the foreign money that followed. At the same time the car industry was announcing its closure, iron ore and coal were being sold to China and people were, were making pots of cash. Royce, I can't figure out how to say the last name unfortunately, journalist and author of The Death of Holden. All of these smaller companies were making heaps of money and that changed the currency rate to the point where you basically had manufacturers losing money every time they exported cars. As foreign money enters an economy, the value of that country's currency balloons, increasing the relative price of the nation's exports. That impacts automakers worldwide, but Australian industry is particularly susceptible due to the volatility of its national dollar. As billions poured in from resource extraction between 2001 and 2011, Australian currency doubled in value. Suddenly, the shift towards a profitable, large-scale vehicle exporting scheme was just out of the question. This partially explains why fantastic V8 muscle cars from down under rarely came stateside. Only tastes of what we were missing. A GTO badge Monaro and a Commodore dressed as a Pontiac G8 slipped through. I think that it was the perfect storm for the car industry. The fact that the Australian dollar went sky high and made manufacturing uncompetitive across a range of things, not just the car industry, says Dr. Lanesbury. That currency boom, he argues, played a much larger part in the demise of Australian automaking 
than the role of organized labor. Though many have scapegoated unionized, unionized workforces, Dr. Lanesbury ranks it low on the list of reasons that the industry floundered. Royce agrees. So does Dr. Harry C. Katz, a professor of collective bargaining at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Australian wage rates in the auto sector were not unusually high, says Dr. Katz. The unions as well were not particularly militantly adversarial. They were tough, but you didn't hear, we have about a zillion disciplines going on, or we have walkout strikes, or we have union leaders we can't even talk to. That's just not what I experienced when I talked to the managers of various plants in the 90s. Blaming labor is too easy. So is laying the corpse at the door of faceless bean counters or stuffy executives in Detroit boardrooms callously dispatching people's livelihoods. It's more comfortable to see it as a failure of people of greed than it is to confront what it says about the core struggle of automotive enthusiasm. Because Australia had the enthusiasm. Try as they might, automakers can't always blame the buyers. Australia only sedans moved in massive numbers, even as sales fell with the decline of the industry as a whole, Holden was still selling almost 25,000 Commodores a year when the factory packed up. In a nation with stratospheric gas prices and a world dominated by bland crossovers, you have to admire the dedication. Australia tried to avoid reality for as long as it could. The government spent like two, spent like two, no, the government spent, okay, that might be a bit of a typo. The government's spent like hell to balance automaker books. Holden received 1.8 billion Australian dollars in subsidies and grants between 2001 and 2012. Ford and Toyota each reportedly took over a billion. It wasn't enough. Profits were tiny and rare, losses massive and routine. Ford succumbed in 2013, which made it even harder for Holden and Toyota to survive. With so few manufacturers, equipment and supplier costs went up. Hat in hand, they asked for they asked the government for more, but the economic reality was unavoidable. Australia, once a thriving automotive fiefdom, that's a weird word, was ultimately a country too small for domestic production and too expensive for export manufacturing. Fed up with subsidizing companies that could no longer, that, sorry, that could never grow to succeed, the Australian government called their bluff. They didn't want to hand out more money without a commitment, without a plan. Cards on the table time. Hockey demanded to know if the automakers were there for good. They weren't. So judging from the comments here, or at the very least this one specific comment by Deke, they always had, they always kind of wondered this rather simply. Can a nation of only 25 million people have a self-sustaining auto industry without export? It seems not. So apparently it would appear that my, my suspicion from the very beginning and well, from the very beginning of this podcast and for a while is in some sense right. Could Australia afford to manufacture unique models that they were only selling in Australia when there weren't enough people to buy those cars to give them profits to pay for manufacturing said cars without export? No. The answer increasingly became no. Australia could not afford that. They, they did try and sell, as the article notes, although they forgot one other version, but they did try and sell the Commodore as the Pontiac G8 in America. They tried to sell the Monaro as a GTO as the Pontiac GTO, and then they eventually, later down the road, sold the later Commodore as the Chevrolet SS. But none of those lasted for very long. I think the GTO, the Monaro thing, might have lasted for a little bit longer. Maybe the G8 lasted longer than the Monaro, but the point was that they weren't here for that much time. Certainly, they weren't here for long enough, and I'm not sure they sold enough. Certainly not enough of the Monaros to help with the manufacturing costs, and the Chevrolet SS, certainly not. And Ford didn't even sell the Falcon, as far as I know, 
in anywhere but Australia. They certainly didn't sell it here in America. So how is it that they could have? How is it that they expected to be able to produce cars, specific cars for that market, or cars for that specific market, like all the Utes, the Falcon, and the Commodore, and be able to sell enough of them to be able to afford to produce them without export? There's just not enough people in that. There's not enough people in Australia to make manufacturing, domestic manufacturing, all that affordable without outside intervention. Not, 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 a, not if you're not going to export. And the fact of the matter is, how many people are going to buy Utes outside of Australia? We're starting to see a truck trend over in Europe now, but would there be a Ute trend by that same token? I don't know. While it's not the only issue, it is interesting to know that my suspicion was part of the issue, that there's just not enough people to justify making unique models for that market without exploring to help production costs. That's why Dodge kept making the Grand Caravan and the Journey well after that, well after they were basically old. They had been able to pay off the tooling because, surprise, surprise, a lot of people bought them. The Journey was old, but it was at a really good price range as well. And once, again, the tooling was paid off, it cost very little to manufacture them. So it was just pure profit or largely profit in the pockets of FCA. But how, or how would Ford or Holden do that when they don't have as many people to buy those specific cars? And let's keep in mind, Dodge did sell the Journey overseas for a time. They even teamed up with Volkswagen to make the Volkswagen Routon. But the point is, Dodge had a bigger market to sell the Journey. I mean, because look, Dodge sells the Challenger, and for a while, Ford and Chevrolet only sold the Camaro and Mustang here. So why could the American auto industry get away with it, but not Australia? The different now, to be fair, Dodge does not produce, or Chrysler does not produce the 300, the Charger, or Challenger in America. But I digress. They could get away with it because we have a far bigger population. So there's more than enough people to buy those cars that the company can then use to put those money to put that money into afford being able to afford producing those cars and buying the supplies and that sort of stuff. But Australia just doesn't have that doesn't have that same kind of population and weren't willing to subsidize the industry to help them out. So all of those things conspire to kill the auto manufacturing industry down in Australia. And it's quite sad. It really is. Because Holden is almost like the quintessential Australian brand. And so to see almost like a chunk of Australia lost to the history books like that is is really, really sad. It's really, really sad. But anyway, I hope you all enjoyed and found this episode interesting. If you did, then please like the episode, share the episode, and follow this podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Hitting the little notification bell and then all notifications. That way you'll be notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road, but don't have or want the Podbean mobile app, well then just boot up wherever you get your podcast. Type in Cody's Car Conundrum and then choose the episode you want to listen to. I'll see you all next time. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at Cody Carr, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full-throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.